We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022, as we head into Hour 3. Watching what happened in the Senate with guns and red flag laws, my first thought was, we are now going to violate the Second Amendment with a dusted-off and warmed-over legal standard of threat of harm to self and others, while we are allowing boys with bags full of dead cats to roam and walk free through the streets of Uvalde. And why nobody can do a thing about the currently disturbed, drug-addled, and violent sleeping in our streets here in Phoenix at night. Because they are not deemed a harm to self and others. Let me focus on the holistic problem with the current gun debate from a different perspective than I've been aiming at it generally. I was just kind of playing with a thought. Something about the progressive movement. Something about the Marxist notion of changing history. How did Karl Marx put it? Quote, philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it, close quote. One could, and Marx in many respects meant history when he used the word world. It actually is rooted in the word progressive. And they're doing it in a lot of different ways. The old is bad and must be replaced. You can certainly see this debate playing out in our border security debate. All of a sudden, we find ourselves having to prove, being on the defensive and having to prove that walls work. So what if they're old? Their utility has borne out, as anyone living in a gated community knows, as any occupant of the White House, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, well know, as Nancy Pelosi certainly knows, as any occupant of the Naval Observatory, where the vice president like Joe Biden and Al Gore before him, would know. Old and tried and true does not translate, is not synonymous with bad. Though to the left, that is already the warp and woof of America. Hence the phrase old white men or dead white men. Old, I'll repeat it, does not necessarily mean bad. Anyone want to replace the wheel, for example? Of course, the left is about taking down monuments. Some physical, like statues. Some institutional, like civic norms and constitutional rights. Those are monuments as well. Their point is to change this world, fundamentally. But they start with the country. Fundamentally transform the country. But it is our country. Remember that word, our. Seems the governors of our country right now see the country as they, not our. Think about where all this started. In education, there's a reason 50% of high school seniors earn an F in American history. We just don't teach it well. We teach what we love, of course, and too many simply do not love our history because they've been taught for generations now, at least two, that our story is a story of misery and oppression when in point of fact it may very well be the second greatest story ever told. William Wordsworth put it this way, what we have loved others will love and we will teach them how. But you cannot teach what you do not love. And two generations of teachers with increasing acceleration in the field of iconoclasm 
have been taught what the United States of America is, which is, to them, unlovable. And of course, it's not just the history in our schools. All kinds of education reforms have plagued our education system for at least four generations. Diane Ravitch wrote a great book on this about 20 years ago called Left Back. She points to all that was working, you know, up until about 1950 or so, and then was put in the hands, I should say, actually stolen by the hands of the progressive movement. As she points out, Whenever or wherever the academic curriculum was diluted or minimalized, large numbers of children were pushed through the school system without the benefit of a real or good education. Why else do you think, with all the technology, the high watermark for SAT scores in America was 1964? Maybe traditional schooling and education, traditional curricula, was too old, too. Well, too traditional, if you will. Ravitch would go on to point out that as the academic curriculum lost its importance as the central focus of a school or the school system, the school lost their anchors. The schools lost their anchors and senses of mission, their internal moral commitment to the intellectual development of each child. That went out the window. This, of course, has now washed up, perhaps I should say tsunamied up, to the post-secondary parts of education at colleges and universities. Try this on for size. According to the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, Less than one-third of the U.S. News and World Report's top 25 liberal arts colleges, top 25 national universities, and top 25 public institutions, less than a third of them, require U.S. history as a requirement for a history major. In other words, you can study and major in history, and if you do, you aren't required to know anything about American history, not a single course. Many institutions instead specify that history majors must take classes in areas outside of the United States. History majors at Williams College, Williams might be the number one college on the U.S. News and World Report any given year. History majors at Williams College have the option of taking soccer and history in Latin America, making the beautiful game. And students at Swarthmore may enroll in modern addiction, cigarette smoking in the 20th century in order to fulfill history major requirements, but not American history per se. According to the study, of the 23 programs that do list a requirement for U.S. history, 11 allow courses that are so narrow in scope they are ridiculous. Here's one, hip-hop, politics, and youth culture in America. Here's another, mad men and mad women. These are the classes that fulfill the American history requirement at, say, the University of Connecticut and Middlebury College, respectively, instead of courses that cover subjects such as the Revolutionary War or the Emancipation Proclamation. Historical illiteracy is the inevitable consequence of lax college requirements, and that ignorance leads to civic disempowerment, said Michael Polyakov, American Council and Trustees uh, uh, President. A democratic republic cannot thrive without well-informed citizens and soldiers. Elite colleges and universities in particular let the nation down when the examples they set devalue the study of United States history. While a lack of U.S. history in a history major's curriculum may produce graduates without a well-rounded history education, the study also shows that general college graduates have a poor knowledge of American history and civic processes. Now you need not wonder anymore how the importance of free speech in the First Amendment or individual rights in the Second Amendment can have any tug or pull anymore with college students or the recent graduates who now run our social media. 
Now you need not wonder how it is there can be a serious appetite to end the Electoral College. Now you need not wonder how it is that laws you thought matter don't have to matter at all in the hands and brains of our courts and judges. You see, precedent is nothing more than history, and the purpose, again, is to change it. Unless, of course, the precedent is but one single Supreme Court case. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? That one case has to held has to be held sacrosanct. That one case from 1973. But of course, it's a case that abnegates all known science and human physiology. That, for the progressive or neo-Marxists, had to be changed too. How to do it? To do that, you change the language. All progressivism must change language. Human beings become slaves or the N-word, and then you can treat them like cattle, or chattel, as we called them. Human beings become fetuses, then you can do to them whatever you want. Republicans become fascists, and then you can deprive them of all equal footing in America when it comes to politics or the enforcement of neutral laws of general applicability, especially in the criminal sphere. Violence can be mostly peaceful. Gender reassignment is gender-affirming. On and on the corruption of language goes or must go if the progressive agenda is the desiderata. And as I was saying yesterday, as Emerson himself put it, the corruption of language is followed by the corruption of man. Remember when we were all once against discrimination? Here's one. Now the leading anti-racist theorist in the country, Ibram Kendi, literally writes, quote, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination, close quote. That's literally in his most famous of books, the one that's become required reading almost everywhere. I remember when someone like George Wallace saying that in his inaugural speech as governor of Alabama, put the fear of the KKK into everyone's heart when he said that. Now it's the new and approved ethic. And of course, history is inconvenient in debates over the Second Second Amendment too, isn't it? We're told by Democrats whenever they want to invent a high crime to go after Republicans when the usual format of politics fails them. We're usually told by them that we have a republic if we can keep it, and they invoke Benjamin Franklin. It's the only time they invoke that we are a republic, and it's the only time they quote one of our nation's founders. When the rest of the founders speak, or what the rest of the founders have to say is irrelevant to them because you cannot redound to their words if fundamental transformation is their goal. So when Thomas Jefferson wrote, quote, no free man shall ever be debarred from the use of arms, close quote, That is of no consequence. The phrase, the right of the people, as found in the Second Amendment, as well as the Ninth Amendment, are of no meaning, because people here do not have rights other than what the government gives to them in the progressive view of constitutionalism. You see this corruption of history and language moves almost everywhere now, including in the literature of the West. Another study by the American Council found a mere four of the 52 top colleges and universities require English majors to take a course focused on Shakespeare. Those institutions are Harvard, University of California, Berkeley, U.S. Naval Academy, and Wellesley. What do these figures mean? For starters, of the Ivy League universities, only one requires its English majors to take a course in Shakespeare. Only one. Only two of the top 25 national universities have a Shakespeare requirement at all. The top 25 liberal arts colleges 
fear no better. The top 25 liberal arts colleges only can boast two that require English majors to study Shakespeare. It is a sad irony that not even Amherst College, which competes with Williams to be the number one private college, not even Amherst College, which has something called the Folger Shakespeare Library, requires its English majors to take a course that focuses on Shakespeare. Maybe if they take their course on Mad Men, they'd understand what Folger's is. Instead, the war against history and standards and the West has to be changed so that English majors today find a mind-boggling array of courses that center on politics, sociology, pop culture, sexuality. Courses notable not because they focus on great literature, but on everything but that heritage of great literature. English classes address a multiplicity of contemporary and non-literary topics, such as, from the course catalogs, I'm reading some course titles, Creatures, Aliens, and Cyborgs, that's Duke University, The Politics of Hip-Hop, Emory, The Vietnam War in Literature and Film, or Detective Fiction, University of Virginia, Cruising Home, Queer, kins- Queer Kinship in Theory and Practice, Haverford, HIV, AIDS, and the Color Line, Arab American Feminists, and U.S. Film in the 1970s, Bates College, Literature, Food, and the American Racial Diet, Princeton University, Women Who Kill, Portrayals of Women and Violence in Lit and Film, Northwestern, Punk Culture, The Aesthetics and Politics of Refusal, Cornell University, Queer Identity, Johns Hopkins, The Wire and Digital Game Studies, Dartmouth. This is how you change a culture. And thus follows, this is how you can change that, that culture's country. On every issue, think present and future. Present is politics. Future is education. And in that thinking, ask yourself if you are waging your present effort at and in politics in a way that will also address the future problem of education. You change the courts via politics, so too the schools. And you change politics through being smart and tough and never, ever, ever, ever giving in. That was the lesson from Winston Churchill. I think we could use a little of him right now, though, yes, I know, he's old too. But as Phil Coulson said to Captain America and the Avengers, with all we're going through right now and all we're about to grow through, we could all use a little old-fashioned. I'm Seth Liebson. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth. Thank you very much, Jeremy. So when you think about what Congress is doing with regard to gun violence, you have to ask the question that we'll talk to Brett Johnson if we need to uh, on this in a few moments. But you have to think about something in the law called equity, which is – one of the elements of, of finding, finding justice in a court of equity is understanding the notion of redressability. The notion of redressability means is what you are trying to accomplish going to solve the problem that you are aiming at. In other words, is what you are seeking an actual solution to the problem at hand? The federal government is busy today doing something I find incredible. I find absolutely incredible. In the midst of everything going on, it's perhaps one of the most tone-deaf things I've ever seen. They're trying to ban, and we are told they will be banning, jewel vaping pods. 
they will be the FDA will be banning jewel vaping pods. These are um, these are obviously vapor nicotine delivery systems that a lot of people use have used to get off cigarette smoking. When other things have failed, they found jewels useful. Uh, jewels aren't safe. I'm not here to carry that brief for them. Anything you're putting into your lungs like that with the chemicals, and that's unnatural, is dangerous. But there's not a study that shows, there's not a single study that I'm aware of that shows that jewels aren't less dangerous than cigarettes. There's no move against the cigarettes. The move is against the less dangerous thing. All at the same time, all at the same time that the feds are just fine and dandy with states letting, quote unquote, legal marijuana happen all over the place. States have been on a rampage to legalize the recreational use of marijuana. First, it was medicinal, quote unquote. Now it's recreational. You find me. You find me a school shooting incident or one of these violent outbreaks where there wasn't a lot of adolescent teen marijuana use. You find me research that shows there is no connection between adolescent high-potency marijuana use and almost all marijuana today is high-potency marijuana. You find me a study that doesn't show a connection between adolescent smoking or use of high-potency marijuana and the chances of developing psychosis. One study, one comprehensive study, shows that it increases the chances of psychosis nearly five times. Five times. But they're going off and after jewels. They're going off and after jewels. Nothing about marijuana and teen use of marijuana. Nothing. You can use the Lancet. You can use the National uh, Institutes of Health. You can look at the comprehensive studies. You can just Google it. You can just Google it, or you can listen to Laura Stack, who I interviewed last week. Laura Stack was on this show last week. She lost her son, Johnny, to suicide based on cannabis-induced psychosis. Yes, there is a thing in the DSM, cannabis-induced psychosis. One meta-analysis, 204 studies of psychosis, find marijuana as the chief risk. Marijuana use is the chief risk factor. Study after study shows it. Chief risk factor for psychosis. And of course, psychosis and violence and that connection is never discussed, ever, when it comes to these school shootings. This guy in Uvalde is walking around the streets of what we are told is a small town carrying, do you see this, Jeremy? Carrying a bag of dead cats. Did you see this? No. This I came didn't out yesterday. Walking the streets of Uvalde carrying a bag of dead cats. Another teacher is interviewed saying if there was going to be a school shooter, I thought it might be him. Nothing. Nothing is done about this ahead of the time. This is a regular marijuana user. This is a man who is involved in self harm, and nothing about this is done whatsoever. But we're going to go after the gun ownership of legal and responsible adults. And we're going to do so under a standard of danger to self and others. There is no better walking definition of a danger to self and others than every one of these school shooters just the hour before, if not the days, weeks, and months before they engaged in their assassinations.
I'm Seth Liebson. We'll have Brett Johnson, and he will be right back with us. Homer Law Firm, based here in Phoenix, offices around the country, swlaw.com, if you want to reach out to him. Brett Johnson is uh, visits with us once a week to go over constitutional and legal issues. Brett, thanks for joining us today. As always, hope you're well. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me again, Seth. You bet, always. All right, so the Supreme Court uh, did a, did, had, came out with a big decision yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, on uh, education and the First Amendment. I want to get your take on it, and then I want to talk to you about how that can help and how it will relate to what's uh, going on in Arizona, which I've always thought, along with you, has been kind of on the uh, front lines of education uh, reform and educational choice. Tell us what the Supreme Court did yesterday, Brett. Yes, perfect. So there's a little bit of background. It's yep. a case called uh, Carson versus Macon, and it is a case out of Maine. Um, and in in uh, in Maine, which I did not know this until I read this case, is the most rural state in the United States. And I did did not know that. That that was that was quite interesting. But because it's such a rural state, it does not have enough school districts to actually um, service all of the students for a public school uh, school system. So as as part of their legislation, they allow uh, parents to choose different schools, um, private schools, and then use tax money to basically pay for the tuition or pay for at least part of the tuition. Um, a, a caveat in that law, in the main law, was that no money could go towards religious institutions. And that was the, the, the sticking point. So they don't have a public school option. They have to be able to go to a, uh, to a private school, and yet they were not able to choose the one that they wanted to go to, which in these, in these two cases were uh, uh, Christian schools. Um, now, I know what you said in the beginning, that it, it, it is revolutionary for sure as to what just Chief Justice Roberts did in this case, but from his own tone, all he's saying is is that actually the Supreme Court already ruled on, mm-hmm. on a very similar mm-hmm. issue in a case called Espinoza versus Montana, mm-hmm. and, and in that case, also a school choice type uh, situation about um, uh, parents being able to direct their tax dollars to a specific institution, and, that, and, and there was a provision in the Montana Constitution that made a prohibition that you couldn't send to religious schools. And the Supreme Court in that case also overruled that law. And what the distinction between the two cases are, it was Montana was is just purely blanket religious schools. And in Maine, they tried to, to make a little bit of an exception from the Espinoza. It's like, it's really not because it's a Christian school or a Jewish school. Um, it's really because of how the money is being used. And then when I mean used, i.e. for religious education, mm-hmm. for other type of religious activities. And that the Chief Justice said in, in, uh, in this case, um, it was blatant. It was like, no, it doesn't matter how that money is being used. And it's not about the actual status, the religious status of the school it's 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 also about the use and if you if you are discriminating against um, a religious institution just because some of the money is going to be used for religious purposes that's still discrimination and a violation of the first amendment so it's it's a very very powerful case and what's actually most interesting from my perspective being a nerd is uh, is actually the dissent mm. because usually in in these types of cases states will go and they'll grapple and they'll say all of the things that, oh, this case doesn't cover us because of whatever the scenario is. Well, the dissent actually lists out in in, in Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer's perspective, two different dissents, these parade of horribles Mm -hmm. that will now occur because of the Supreme Court opinion. So by in those dissents, 
all of the different exceptions that the states would normally say, oh, it doesn't apply to us, have actually been identified along the laundry list. Yeah. So at how this case is now going to be, could be extended out by different states, um, especially those states that have uh, um, uh, choice um, programs. Let me do this, Brett. That because you said a lot there, and um, yep. you know, one of the other things. Let me let me take a quick commercial break with you and come back on some of this. One of the interesting things I thought about the case was I'm used to reading First Amendment cases how how short it seemed, and and I thought that there was a point in there. I'll explore that with you, and I also want people to understand that a lot of these laws, like Maine had. They came from a not very good place. It really was an ins- uh, they really did come from a place of religious discrimination back in the 19th century when you think about some of these Blaine exceptions. I think, I think I'll explore that briefly with you when we come back. But I think what's interesting here is we have a Supreme Court that is now determined and convinced that we are not going to discriminate between religion and irreligion. We'll pick up on all that with Brett Johnson when we come back. As I go to break, let me put in a word for my friends at Why. Refi. If you're looking for a great investment opportunity, Why Refi is offering a fixed, no load interest rate up to ten and a quarter percent for investors, all in a collateralized, secure portfolio. They're in the business of helping people dig out of debt the right way by paying off their debts. It's a due diligence approved firm. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R E F Y dot com. Investyrefi.com. I'm Seth. He's Brett Johnson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brett Johnson is our guest, uh, partner at the law firm of Snell & Wilmer, SWLaw.com. I just think the world of him. They're not sponsors or anything. I just think he's the best there is. Uh, Brett, um, towards the break, I said something, and I may have been wrong about it. I, you know, I didn't look it up or anything, but I, I remember from previous cases of state constitutions or state laws forbidding the use of public funds to end up in the hands of a parochial or religious school came out of a of a of a 19th century what were known as Blaine amendments which were really kind of designed to target the catholic community in large part i didn't know if the main case was one of those it wouldn't be surprise surprising blaine and all that but a lot of these bars to using public funds for religious uh, purposes or religious schools do come from a origin of some kind of discrimination, don't they? Am I right about that? You tell me if I'm wrong. You are right. And actually what you're channeling right now is Chief Justice Roberts when he wrote in Espinoza, and you mentioned that previous to the, uh, the break, about how short this opinion is. Right, right. right. Yeah, am I right about that, too? I thought you're, it was you're short. You're right about that, too. Okay. And, and the reason why it's short is because the ju- Chief Justice is saying, I've already addressed this in Espinoza, okay. so I don't need to go back through Espinoza and, and reiterate all the history, which includes the Blaine Amendments. That was big, and that was we're back in the 1870s that did target um, the Catholic Church and Catholic schools to ensure that there was absolutely no support for those and tried to diminish um, their influence or sending kids. They came the from a place school. of bigotry. That's, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, Anti Catholic bigotry. Well, I'm looking at it right now, and Chief Justice actually has that in quotes okay. born of bigotry. Good. That's exactly Good. what, what he, Good. he said. Good. Um, but the main one, I'll give Maine a little bit of credit. Maine um, actually, uh, before 1980s, um, also had provisions in their in their statutes that that basically did allow um, uh, school funding for private uh, religious institutions, okay. and it was actually in the 80s where there was kind of a backlash right. and this really stringent 
uh, church and state separation, where Maine's attorney general basically said, hold on here, you can't have right. that. And so then they changed the law back uh, back in the 80s. Right. So not originally from Blaine, it was, it was through a, a really bad interpretation of the First Amendment, um, which uh, is interesting. I call it the First Amendment, and but some people, including Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, calls it the Religious Amendment. Yeah. So I thought that was that's that's a very yeah. What do you think that was about? Do you think there's a there's a bias against religion there too that, that's leaking out in that? What, what that was? I thought that phraseology was odd. I, I think so too, and I think what she's now she was trying to highlight is is that there's not she calls it this joint there's a, a joint between the first amendment yeah. between the separation and now by calling it the religious amendment yeah. she's basically saying that the religious side of it the, yeah. um, the support uh, that you can't discriminate against religion has basically overcome um, the separation of church and state and so that's why she called it the religious amendment in my mind so it was a little bit of kind of tongue in cheek in her, in her dissent but again you see you see her um, not just high highlighting from this case, but from other cases about the, the differences from this court to previous courts and and kind of the position that they're taking. So between this ruling and some of the other rulings that have come out um, um, in the last two years, for sure, um, you're, you are seeing a significant shift in, in um, the Supreme Court and basically reiterating not only state rights, but individual um, uh, religious rights over um, state action. Brett, and how it's litigated sometimes is interesting, too. We are calling this a freedom of religion case. A lot of these were once known as Establishment Clause cases, too. Is, it, is the way the litigation goes uh, somewhat predictive of the way the outcomes are going to turn, or is it just the courts are looking at these more as freedom of religion than Establishment Law cases? It, 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 well, this this Supreme Court is for sure seeing it as freedom of religion okay. and and not um, and not having any discrimination. So mm-hmm. if a government is, is acting, and there was a case that we we were we made reference to on several several um, times ago about a Boston case about the flag um, and basically religious flags being able to fly right. outside right. of uh, of um, and the city hall there, right. and and that was a unanimous decision, by the way. And basically, what it says is if the government has decided to enter into the fray, they cannot discriminate against religion. Right. And that's exactly what this case says, and that's what Chief Justice Roberts was saying, is like, then just have public schools. That's right. Don't, 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 don't have any of uh, the school choice, don't have any of these other funding, school safety, playgrounds, etc. Don't, don't fund those. There's no requirement that you fund those. But if you choose to fund those, you cannot discriminate against religious schools. And I think that that's going to be the fundamental issue. Yeah. Again, it's about um, if the government chooses to make a to make a determination and act in a certain way, it just cannot discriminate. Right. They're saying you can send your money to Phoenix Country Day School, but not Brophy. And that's that just makes no sense because that's preferring irreligion over religion, sort of. Or Notre Dame for, would be the better example. Right. But, but right. You're bringing, you're, you're bringing, you bring it back to Arizona. Yeah, that, that's Arizona, where I wanted to go. Yeah. No, no problem. And, and Arizona has been a leader in school choice that, that goes actually back to, to the 80s, too. Um, we have here in Arizona 
in some states have started adopting it, that they, that the charter school system, you don't have to go to the school in your neighborhood when we all grew up. You either went to, quite honestly, the private school or you went to the school down the street. You didn't, you didn't have a choice to go to the district over because it was better than the one you had. Arizona has changed that, and you can go to any school um, in, in, in the state, quite honestly, and you take your money with you. Um, and that's what is called back, backpack funding. Right. And what the Arizona legislature has actually put into its most recent budget hasn't been approved yet, is basically this concept that the money will follow the student, whether it's to a private institution, a charter school, or a traditional public school. So you're really seeing uh, parents' choice is that where does the parent want to send their kid um, and also be able to ensure that the student is the predominant focus versus whatever else might be um, in a particular school district. And from, you know, being a market capitalist kind of guy, that is only going to make uh, some of the school districts better. And I think that this case is going to have a significant ramification because that money is can be used in religious institutions yeah. now. Yeah, we've been at this since... My gosh, I'm trying to think. When was Lisa Keegan our superintendent? 95, 96? We've been at this since 95, 96. These wheels uh, turn slowly, but they finally turn. <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly. And, she, and she's still doing, she's still doing great work. She is doing great work. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I know she was part and parcel of... Uh, my friend uh, Karen Taylor Robeson's uh, plan for education. Brett Johnson, Snell and Wilmer Law Firm. Bless you, sir. Godspeed. Until next week, thanks for always keeping us on the straight and narrow here. Oh, thank you very much. We'll talk soon. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back, and thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Jeremy, thanks for sitting in the big chair today. Appreciate it. Very happy to do it, sir. Did you have a good time? Always have a good time with you. You're great. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, Winston Churchill's been on my mind a bunch today. I guess I cited him a bit in my monologue earlier. Um, I was uh, reading through uh, a William Buckley uh, collection, and I saw what he wrote about. So I was I was struck by what he wrote upon Churchill's death in 1965, and it's beautiful. And I thought we could close with a little beauty. He, William Buckley, he writes of Winston Churchill, For as long as heroes are written about, Winston Churchill will be written about. The proportions are all abundantly there. He was everything. The soldier who loved poetry, the historian who loved to paint, the diplomat who thrived on indiscretion, the patriot with international vision, the orderly man given to electric spontaneities, the man who flunked everything at school, and then kept a generation of scholars busy interpreting his work and his words. The loyal party man who could cross the aisle and join the opposition when principle called. The Tory traditionalist revered in his old age by uh, the neoteric levelers. Neoteric levelers. <laughs> you don't get a lot of that on talk radio. Buckley concludes he was a very great man. He was a very great man, and we did use to study great men like Churchill. We used to. That's what a hero was. When Buckley said, as long as heroes are written about, we will study heroes like William, excuse me, like Winston Churchill. Think about the degradation I was speaking of earlier, from literature to history. Think about the degradation. Who are the heroes we look up to now? We were told Kamala Harris would be a hero. That's who the kids look up to now. And they will have no idea who Winston Churchill is. Why? Because of the neoteric pedagogy. You're tired of that word? We'll define it. It means new or modern, recent. 
Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Leapson. He's Jeremy Siegel, and class is dismissed.